You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford and Dr. Karen Stolznow, each week we talk about monsters, the evidence for them, the science behind them, and their impact on society. This week we have an interview with author Stephen Asma about his new book titled On Monsters. If you love monsters and are interested in their impact on Western culture, you'll enjoy this book. It has great illustrations and lots of interesting details. You'll learn more about it in our interview. Links to the book will be in the show notes. Let's get started. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Today we're going to be talking about On Monsters, An Unnatural History of Our Worst Fears by Stephen T. Asma. This is a really nice book, Steve. I, I really like this book. It's really beautiful. You called it a, uh, a sort of a survey of Western monsters, and boy, it, you cover a lot of material. What led you to want to write uh, such a comprehensive survey of monsters? Um, it's one of those things where once you get going, you can't stop. I originally, I think, was drawn to this some of this material because I had uh, written a book on the development of natural history museums called Stuffed Animals and Pickled Heads, and that had gotten me interested in sort of these teratology specimens and freaks and um, this sort of underbelly of natural history. That's really sort of from the late Renaissance all the way up through sort of the P.T. Barnum um, era. And then I realized that, you know, because I have sort of training in philosophy, I thought, you know, Aristotle has things to say about monsters, too. And then there's all this sort of medieval stuff on demons. And uh, somehow one thing led to another. I thought there's kind of a, a series of threads that I could trace from the ancient world all the way up to the present. And, uh, and that's, how, that's basically how it got going. And your, your background is in philosophy, right? Yeah, that's my training. It's you know it's one of those things where yeah when uh, 
when you if you go to a carnival and go see the the freak shows and the pickled punks uh, and all those sorts of things, the, the the babies in the jars, you don't necessarily think of that as necessarily being in the realm of philosophy. Uh, but of course, in many ways, it is because you know the question becomes, you know, what is a monster and why are we attracted to them? And I I'll just uh, reinforce what Blake said. I mean, I as someone who has had a, a similar interest in in you know freaks and, and monsters and things that go bump in the night and scare us, this is this is one of the best books on the subject I've read. And I have a shelf of them, so this is this is very good work here. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And I think uh, Oxford did a good job of with the design work too. You know, today in publishing, people are looking to cut corners, but they really, I think, crafted the book. They even like created new fonts to have like little monsters in the letters on some of the. You know, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. So they they really did a nice job. You uh, you did some of the illustrations yourself. I have a. I started out as a. Uh, illustrator and a painter uh, when I was in college and so um, I've always continued to do drawings and you know one of the things about the history of monsters is that some of it is in the um, texts you know either in story or in the you know the theological writings of Augustine or what have you but some of it really comes out of the pictorial traditions so artists have for a long time been imagining and reimagining monsters and so as somebody who draws, I thought, well, this is a, sort of a great opportunity for me to, to get to draw some of these things, too. So that was a lot of fun. The, the artwork's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you did really great illustrations and, uh, and a lot of different styles. So uh, some, of, some of the stuff looked like, you know, kind of pseudo woodcut, and some of it looked like really nice, careful graph illustrations. So. And, and some of the stuff, for example, you, you drew the, the, the golem, the golem. Uh, and that, that reminded me immediately of uh, Dungeons and Dragons monster manual that I used to play with. I'm like, hey, he did the, <laughs> he did the, he did the art for D&D. That was awesome. So, well, let me, let me ask you, are you um, in your in the in the first part of the book, you talk about uh, sort of being uh, phobic uh, about lake monsters and murky water and spiders. Do you do you still have that or did you sort of work out those demons through writing the book? <laughs> um, no, I still have some of those phobias about the. Uh deep water uh, i think that um i think that stuff is like deep in the uh it's, it's not in the limbic brain it's it's all the way back in the reptile brain <clears throat> and no matter how much my neocortex uh, learns about um you know that the water's safe and that there's nothing to fear and you know I, i'm a skeptic too i have sort of a skeptical nature uh not i can't convince my uh old brain to let go of some of these fears so i'd still I, it's not like i won't get in the water or anything and I, it's just that uh, when i go swimming in a lake or something i'm imagining some some uh, leviathan uh down below and then i gotta say you know uh scientists do dredge up some fairly weird stuff on a regular basis and it reminds me you know that there's a lot more out there that we're, we're unaware of so i guess that keeps me on my toes yeah or, or, or off the lake bottom right so <laughs> yeah right off the lake bottom anyway. the, well, i thought that was interesting because you mentioned uh how that uh people with the phobia of snakes even if the snake's been devenomized or defanged still have that instinctive fear um, and I mean, your book's not exactly on fear; it's on monsters. But you know, fear and uh, and monsters go hand in hand, I guess. I suppose you know, there's kind of a literature coming out of evolutionary psychology that says um, that some of these phobias might be hardwired in the brain, like a module of some sort, where even if you do show somebody, you know, we've removed the venom, or um, you know, this is not a poisonous spider, or whatever, that still the fear is quite intense. 
And so some of these folks uh, in the evolutionary psychology tradition think, well, there's a good reason why that fear would be there because, uh, of course, it, it behooved our ancestors to stay away from these things because so you could pass on your gene line. And so this somehow got built up. Now, I'm not sure that's true, um, but I do think there's something to it. Um, there's an interesting study that I think, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Tim Flannery. I mentioned in the book, Tim Flannery, I think is his name. He was looking, uh, why is spider phobia so universal? Because it seems to, to cross a lot of, um, you know, cultural barriers. And um, the argument is that, well, there should be some kind of spider perhaps in our African uh, prehistory uh, that, that perhaps may have been the prototype for this fear. And it turns out there are spiders that are extremely dangerous to babies um, in the sort of Serengeti and Savannah region. The, one, um, the argument is that they were always there and that they could have been the selective pressure for, these, for sort of this kind of phobia module in the brain. So that's one theory. That, that's that's hard to falsify, but it, but it does make sense. Yeah. I, I mean, you look at like uh, I think I was reading recently about tobacco plants, or it might have been cotton. But I think it was tobacco, where that it, you can look and see that it, it can, based on an insect response, it can generate different chemical scents to attract predators for whatever is preying on it, right? And so it's easy to say, well, right. okay, if it can generate six or seven chemicals or five chemicals, but it only has three predators, then there's probably two missing, two that have been extinct for some reason. But going for fear, fears, it's harder to uh, figure out what, you know, <laughs> what from, you know, that seems like a, it's not necessarily a defensive mechanism, but it seems like it's an important thing to have for safety's sake. Uh, but it really falsifying Evo psych is really difficult, but it certainly is fascinating. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think a, a better theory might be that, um, we have some of these affective systems like fear, um, and you know there's sort of interesting work being done by uh, the affective neuroscientist named Jak Pangsep, and he shows that the affective system is sort of in place, but it can be triggered by a variety of different environmental factors. So it's not that you have modules in the brain hardwired. That that I think is probably not correct, but once you there are sort of environmental triggers that are going to be sort of um, changeable or malleable depending on where the where the um, where you're born and where you grow up, and these get fed into the system, and then they sort of lock in as sort of cognitive defaults after a certain time. Once you know plasticity of the brain sort of closes or something, so that's a different sort of theory to try to get some some explanation of how some of these phobias get 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 sort of burned in. It is absolutely a fascinating book. Uh... And I wanted to say, you surprised me because uh, I've read so many books about monsters, it's rare that I, I pick up one and learn something completely new, unless I go into, you know, at least in Western culture. I'm always learning stuff about Asian monsters and South American monsters um, uh, that I didn't know, but just because I grew up reading more of, like, you know, Greek culture, you know, uh, mythology and monster books from Western Eastern Europe, Western Europe, um, but but the, uh, the you were talking about the Cynocephalus dog-headed men, and I didn't know that uh, Saint Christopher was supposedly one of these creatures. Yeah, <laughs> that's not well known in the West. Even if you're born and re you know, even if you're raised uh, Christian, I was raised as a Catholic, uh, but Roman Catholicism, you know, um, shares many of the same saints that the Eastern Orthodox, the Russian and Greek Orthodox church has but the traditions are quite different and in the eastern church um 
St. Christopher is a cynocephalus, and this is the dog-headed um, creatures that uh, were believed to roam about in either in sort of uh, lower Egypt, North Africa. Sometimes they were attributed to India, but they were like men in every other way except they had dogs' heads and they couldn't speak. They would just bark at each other, and uh, there's references to them all the way back in the ancient Greek uh, Tessius, and then up through the Romans and Pliny and then into the medieval era, they were fascinated by it. So there's some passage apparently where Christopher, who they, I think they suggest um, was uh, from this land of the dog heads, and it sort of gets translated as, you know, that he's a kind of cephalus. So there's a pictorial tradition where he's actually represented as this dog-headed creature, and he converts to Christianity, and then, that, then the Holy Spirit gives him the power of human speech, and then, but with this human speech, he's able to go out and convert others, and he sort of has superpowers and, and all the rest of it, too. So he, he would go out and convert others because of his, his miracle and because he's got the dog head. Right, huh. yeah. Would, would, would he, before he converted them, would he sniff their butts? <laughs> I, I would assume so. <laughs> it's entirely possible. It's a good sign of being a, bar, uh, a barbarian. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the Hunterian Museum and its collection of deformed babies. And, and as you noted in the book, I mean, there's a, there are a couple other museums. I think the, the Mutter Museum is, is probably the, the best known um, around here. What, what do you think that draws people to such things? Yeah, there is this, um, you know, there's this interesting continuity between, like, the unfortunate, you know, developmental uh, cases where where you have like conjoined twins and um, these teratology cases and the chimeras of the ancient Greek tradition, for example, like where you're like you said, it's like a mix of well, it's it's human but not quite human, or it's some combination of uh, a human and another kind of creature. And I don't know. There's a, there's a philosopher, Noel uh, Carroll, who uh, argues that there's some something attractive about cognitive mismatch like this, that the, the world is ordinarily organized for us, you know, um, in terms of these categories, you're human or you're not human. Um, mm-hmm. But whenever you have these boundary crossers, there's something sort of exciting about this and arousing. And um, I don't know what the sort of neurophysiology of it would be, but it, it does seem to be the case that we're both attracted and repulsed by things that don't fit in these categories. So in the book, I'm trying to give a lot of examples of these and, and try to suggest why this might be the case. And uh, I do think there's something, there's also this sort of, um, you know, this, how can I put it, like there but for the grace of God go I, a feature of some of these museum specimens, like at the Hunterian uh, I remember there was this kid. I was. This was in. It's in the Royal College of Surgeons, and I'm in there, and there's there's basically nobody in there. <laughs> and this kid comes in with his mother, and and the, and the mother's showing the kid these sort of vitrines with these horrible, like all the ways nature can go wrong. There's just like many different, you know, lots of different limbs on this thing, and not enough limbs on another, and two heads here, and. And the kid is just grossing out and, uh, you know, oh, my God, and just thoroughly disgusted. And then the mother says, uh, well, should we go? Is this disturbing? And he goes, no, let's stay. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's something about this that we're all familiar with, I think. Um, and monsters are a great, great sort of place where this happens. When you were talking about, you know, the 
the, the ways in which we're attracted or interested and intrigued by things that are sort of half one way, half the other way. I mean, hermaphrodites would be a good example. And, and you know, I guess you could make the argument that even evil people, you know, serial killers and, you know, genocidal maniacs, we can sort of picture somebody, you know, killing their neighbor over, you know, some yard dispute or in a, in a drunken rage. Um, and we can we can certainly picture someone not doing that because that's our everyday life. But then when you have this sort of extreme, like, well, they're they're taking it far and above, and that sort of holds a certain fascination for people. I think that's right. Yeah, monsters. Uh, if you you know, I try to look at what what are some of the universals about monsters because there's a lot of sort of particular differences. Um, but one of the universals is the one you just hit on, I think, which is that they they really do violate. You know our ration, our normal rational processing of what's happening. And in the old days, the the monsters were sort of natural history kinds of creatures that one one presumed to live elsewhere. And then there was this sort of metaphysical, spiritual monsters of the medieval period. But today we have these moral monsters, people like Jeffrey Dahmer, serial killers, and the, you know the mind reels at this stuff because it's so far off the moral map. Of what we what we understand to to motivate human action, and so we use this term monster, I think, still in an intelligent way, to sort of demarcate these people who are are off this map, um, and and I think that's a sort of a, we see that as a continuing thread from the ancient world all the way to the present. You had talked about the ideas that uh, that monsters can be created uh, in the womb, like if a pregnant woman had a traumatic experience, that that could be passed on. Um, and I, I think I remember when I watched the uh, the Elephant Man. I don't remember if it was actually in the fictionalized version or if it was in like one of the documentaries that that the Barkers were saying that the mom had been frightened by an elephant and that that had passed on um, the the elephantine features um, to John Merrick. And I was thinking about uh, a lot of that perception of um, how monsters were formed in the womb has changed since Darwin and. You actually touched on that. Would you like to talk a little bit about, about how Darwin changed the perception of monstrous births? Yeah, that's an interesting um, sort of thread in the in the book that um, I think is not well understood. Even like when people talk about monsters, like you know, everybody knows the sort of revolution Darwin had on all the facets of uh, biology and even into the humanities. But what's interesting is that he, before he developed the natural selection as the mechanism. He actually entertained the idea of uh, monstrous births as a kind of launching pad for new species. And this was sort of, uh, I think this was suggested to him by uh, Richard Owen, who was a friend of his back in the 40s. Um, They had a falling out afterwards because Owen couldn't really accept the notions of evolution that Darwin eventually came to. But in those early days, it was... um, Darwin was actually, when he got back from Galapagos and he had this collection, he went to Owen, and Owen was great at describing um, specimens and categorizing them, and so he helped Darwin go through some of the actual um, specimens that he had brought brought back from the Beagle. And it was during this time that they spent time in the Hunterian Museum, which Owen was the curator of. And the Hunterian Museum is John Hunter's museum. It goes back to sort of the previous generation. But it was filled with these sort of monstrous specimens. And so what we know from the notebooks of Darwin from the, you know, from the 1830s and 40s, um, the M&M notebooks in particular, he's basically trying to work out the theory before he's read Thomas Malthus and he knows about uh, 
you know, develops natural selection. He says, well, maybe it's the case that, you know, these monsters are the starting place for new species. And, and then he goes through and he sort of, he, he considers this and then he gives arguments against it. And eventually he throws this out and he says, no, it can't be this way because, you know, he interviews lots of animal breeders and he discovers that in, in almost all these cases, you know, it's usually deleterious. It's usually the case that the, that the uh, creatures basically die off or they're sterile. The, they don't sort of have good reproductive potential. So he, he throws that over for a more gradualist um, notion of change, and then he hits on the natural selection theory. So I, this is sort of an exciting place. But one of the things that's sort of interesting for monster studies is that um, sort of prior to Darwin, the idea of monsters, you know, were, was, was deviation from the norm. But after Darwin, you know, he even says at one point, we're all a little bit monstrous because deviation from the norm is, is how nature works. That's basically variation, and all of us mm -hmm. are deviations. So that's sort of an exciting change. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way to put that. I hadn't thought about that. Um, let me get back to um, some of the exhibits. Uh, one exhibit that I've seen a couple times, and it's actually uh, came to my local city, is the bodies exhibit. You know, the, the plastination. Would you yeah. uh, would you include the bodies exhibit uh, as depicting monsters? I mean, to many people, the the, the exhibit of uh, you know the insides of people, you know, the figures with the, where you see the the muscles and skin and bones. Um, is unnerving or distasteful or terrifying or immoral in some cases. Um, yet it's bizarre because, of course, that's what's inside all of us. I mean, what could be more natural than our bodies? Uh, what, how, how do you see that? Yeah, I, that's a good example. I think it does have – I've seen that show. I, I guess it's coming in different permutations to different cities, but I've seen, I've seen the version of it that came through Chicago, and um, – yeah, I, I think it does have a lot of the same features uh, as you hit on. Um, there's something uh, disgusting about it um, and also intriguing and exciting. And it's possibly even mo more disturbing because it's, uh, it's not some other sort of thing. You know, it's not some bizarre creature. It's actually us. And it, it brings in one of the features, I think, that um, I talk about in the book, uh, Freud's notion of the uncanny. I'm not really a Freudian per se, but he hit on something sort of psychologically interesting, which is this phenomenon of the uncanny. And he says, you know, um, it's one thing to be afraid of something. It's another thing to sort of have angst or, you know, existential dread. But there's a unique sort of psychological uh, phenomenon when something is reminds you uh, of something familiar but at the same time, something foreign and and sort of uh, that you're unaccustomed to, and there's this the simultaneous experience that you get that's sort of unlike any other. And I think you find this in like that those plastination sorts of exhibits where you're, you know, this is a human being, but my God, you know, look at it, uh, the skin's been peeled off it. It's just this sort of it's just the meat, mm -hmm. <laughs> so to speak, of the creep of of who we are, and yet it's us. In some cases, I think the guy actually blew up the bodies and made them bigger than they mm -hmm. normally were by sort of infusing them with more of this uh, fluid. So there's something like familiar and incredibly unfamiliar at the same time. Um, I know a lot of gamers have noticed this phenomenon of the uncanny, too, in gaming because they, they talk about 
when you when you have a, a sort of a um, an avatar of some kind that's really animal looking or really bizarre looking, you relate to it in one way. But as it gets closer and closer to the human uh, form, then you you get into this uncanny, uncanny region where the thing, you know, like some of this bad CGI from you know ten years ago, you can see it looks like humans, but not quite in the eyes. It looks mm-hmm. not, it's sort of off, and it gives you this un, unsettling feeling. And I think there's a long tradition in the monster stories and in the monster um, images that plays on this uncanny uh, psychological phenomenon. Something from earlier in the book. Uh, Again, I've read a lot of books about monsters, but I really I found a lot of new and interesting things in here. And you talked about the uh, Malleus Maleficarum, uh, the Hammer of Witches book, which was used during the uh, witch hunter trials in medieval times. Uh, but I had never heard – I usually hear about its term, its contents, including you know how to torture witches and how to determine if someone's a witch. But what I had never heard before was you talked about how that the author – I think his name was Institoris uh, – said, said yeah. that uh, you know there, there's sort of a, a theological question about how could demons and devils have power if God has the motive power of the universe. And he had come up with this methodology where he says that that they can't break the rules of the universe, but they have really, really detailed knowledge of how things work and how to manipulate the rules and work within those rules. And I thought, wow, you know, from a gaming perspective, that makes demons and devils and witches the ultimate rules lawyers, which (laughs) just just kind of amused me. But it was really I'd never actually heard that part before. So. Uh, yeah, I I had not heard that too, and then I, I hadn't. I basically went through the text really carefully and found all kinds of crazy stuff in there. Uh, so that was a, yeah, that was a very interesting example of it. How long did it take you to write this book? I, again, again, it's, it's very detailed and covers a, a hell of a lot of ground. It took a few years. Um, I sort of hatched the idea. Um, let me see. Now it came out uh, about a year ago, less than a year ago, and. Um, and it was in production for a while, so I have to sort of work backwards. But I would say uh, I developed the idea over the course of a year, and then it took me about three years to write it because, as you can see, it's it's pretty heavily researched. Um, I've written a, a few, several books. Like this is, my, I think, my sixth book, and um, this thing has a huge amount of um, notes in the back and notes uh-huh. um, based, you know, for the, for the research I did, so that readers can. If they're interested, or you know, they, their, their interest gets peaked in a certain area, they can go to this stuff and follow up. So it's heavily annotated. So that always takes a little longer. You want to get everything just right. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. And and that's that's also one of the reasons that, that it, is, it is such a good book um, because again you know Blake and I we 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 write the stuff we live it we read it and we we've seen lots and lots of books that are on monsters or you know of some you know whether it's Bigfoot or Chupacabra or whatever else and the vast majority of them certainly uh, you know I would guess ninety percent of them are number one non skeptical number two it's clear that the 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 writers haven't done a lick of research. They, there's you yeah. know, little or no references, um, no end notes. It's just sort of, you know, something they copied off Wikipedia and from another, another, uh, another, another previous authors. And so it's, it's nice to see someone writing in a scholarly uh, way about, about these things. So, um, anyway. yeah, there's actually a, there's, it's funny. There's a, um, there's a, the book has been very well received. I think it's gotten excellent reviews, and it's been heavily reviewed. But what's funny is, like, the, when I see somebody like who's right, they don't like it. It's usually somebody who's picked it up, and they just want, you know, like crazy stories of stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, from this really not this really gullible tradition that you're talking about, which is would definitely be the dominant uh, tradition on monsters. There's another. Mm. Maybe there's one other sort of academic and more scholarly approach to monsters, but it's heavily influenced by sort of postmodern deconstruction literary theory. And that stuff is also, to my, I, I had to plow through a lot of that stuff too in order to write, you know, an informed book, but that stuff is pretty tedious. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, first of all, we'll have a link to your book in our show notes so that people can buy a copy if they want to. Early in the book, you talk about uh, an instance when Alexander the Great came up on a castle and had to do battle with a bunch of monsters. And this was kind of a, a it seems like a very, you know, almost mythological tale about Alexander in India. But, it, but at the same time, those kind of stories were coming out of uh, the Middle East and into Europe and being accepted as true, right? Um, later on, you know, we get stories like uh, Frankenstein and Dracula, which are clearly fiction, but draw on uh, that tradition of, of monster lore. Where, where do you think that sort of breakdown happens? I mean, where, where is it that people start to become a little bit more skeptical about monsters um, and not necessarily treating them as real do you, do you, in history? Where, where yeah. does that happen? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a good question. Um, you know, the, the way this is ordinarily sort of cashed out is that, you know, you, you basically have the, the dark ages of the, of the medieval period, the re, then the rebirth of, uh, ancient Greek, um, rationalism in the Renaissance, and then quickly after you get the scientific revolution and, you know, the, the sort of 
skeptical method gets, you know, and the empirical method uh, gets underway and sort of clears house from a lot of superstition. And it, when I did this research, so I found that it was way more complicated than that. And the skeptical moments um, really come and go. They, they really vacillate with gullibility. So you look at these periods, even in the ancient Greek world, I, I dis- describe, you know, the attitudes towards hermaphrodites or because there were some very uh, crazy supernatural sort of uh, beliefs about hermaphrodites. And even in Roman law, it was thought that if you found one, you'd better drown it right away because it was a sign of, you know, it was an omen um, of really bad stuff and you got to get it out of the, you know, out of the city. And then, and this would sort of, uh, and then rationalists would come in and hold the day for maybe a couple of centuries even, and then it would swing back again. And so you see, for example, even in Aristotle's day, if we go back even further, Aristotle was incredibly a skeptical and a rationalist about uh, the sciences and about nature. But he couldn't help, you know, the world was a bigger place then. And so stories coming in of creatures, if they seemed, you know, like they were corroborated a couple of times by travelers, well, it seemed like it was something that, that could be out there. And um, so the story of skepticism you know, uh, is complicated, and it's not this sort of crescendo, slow crescendo. I, I refer to this case in the book about, you know, cryptozoology. Uh, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of crazy stuff in cryptozoology. I also think, you know, um, if you go back um, in history to even like Thomas Jefferson, who was very interested in the natural world and considered himself a kind of scientist, um, you can see where the world was a much bigger place then. When he sent Lewis and Clark uh, west, he actually said, hey, keep your eye out for some of this amazing stuff that could be out there alive. And he's referring to the fossil finds. Um, you know, the fossil finds that are coming out of the Paris Basin are just these giant creatures. And then the megatheria, he himself was uh, sort of instrumental in discovering and um, and describing the great claw, which turned out to be a, a giant sloth, and he thought this stuff must be alive out there somewhere because nature is really big and, and unexplored. And so you got to give it to him that he, you know, it sounds to us gullible from our point of view, but from his point of view, it was a fairly reasonable thing to to think. So so that dynamic is fairly interesting over history. In uh, in your book, you depict many monsters as evil and bad. In fact, that's sort of one of the, you know, the, the unnatural history of our worst fears. Um, but in fact, many monsters such as Bigfoot and lake monsters like Nessie and Champ um, are seen by many people, especially people who see, who, who eyewitnesses and, and people who support them and believe in them, as uh, benign, wisdom-bearing creatures connected to nature. Um, in, in many In many cases, you know, if, if you ask people what what is Champ like or Champ like or Ogopogo like, um, they it's it's considered this sort of cute uh, they cute fluffy um, you know they they have uh, dolls depicting them and you go to Loch Ness and there's uh, they have plush animals uh, so these are not scary terrifying uh, evil bad creatures. How does that fit into your your thesis? Yeah, that's a that's a good point and and you. You feel, I've spent, uh, I lived in China for a while and I lived in Cambodia for a while and I, I have a long standing interest in East Asian culture, um, Japanese animism, uh, some of the stuff, um, coming, you know, you think about the dragon in China, which is, 
so beloved that uh, people even refer to themselves as the children of the dragon. And um, I think it's often the case that, uh, and my book, because it focuses on the West, tends to trace this, it's often the case that monsters are these horrible you know, creatures that, that instill fear and represent, you know, our vulnerabilities. But there is, as you were suggesting, this whole other tradition of the monstrous, which is just the, what I would call, um, uh, creatures of wonder. They, they basically, um, they defy the categories and our ordinary classifications for things, and they simply, um, appeal to us as curious you know, um, as curious beings, like we're, we are, I think, epistemologically driven to know and to try to answer mysteries. And so some creatures come along and they sort of embody some of this mystery and wonder. And that's something that I think, uh, you can see in some of these other creatures. And then we, then we sort of also humanize them. You know, we, we put this sort of Disney (laughs) spin on it. And we mm-hmm. have, you know, Monsters, Inc. and Monsters versus Aliens, and they're sort of cute and cuddly. And some of this is, I think, also designed to, you know, just humanize and make some of this um, mystery, you know, less disturbing, more something more well, powerful. Well, that's interesting. So, so you think that, that uh, people have uh, this natural desire for something wondrous? Mm-hmm. Would you call that a wonderlust? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. It sounds kind of lame, but yeah. Seriously, that that might account for things like the Minnesota Iceman and the the Georgia Bigfoot and the Cardiff Giant, those kind of phenomena. Is is that what you think that's tapping into? I think so. I mean, there's something, uh, you know, even as a skeptic, uh, I I think, in fact, skeptics are incredibly um, curious. They're the most curious people, and they're oftentimes driven by stuff they can't understand. And then they, they, they're drawn to it to try to understand it. And frequently, you know, you can. And one of the, of course, the, my own view is that the best way to understand the mysteries of nature is through science. Um, but everybody, you know, all of the great science popularizers, Carl Sagan, Stephen Jay Gould, you know, they, they all recognize that wonder has a great role to play even in the, the scientific quest. So in many ways, I see you know, some of this fascination with uh, the exotic, with exotic creatures is just a continuation of this sort of human urge to to understand things. Let me go back to what you're saying about about the um, the sort of delineation between some monsters being evil and some monsters uh, sort of being embraced as as sort of warm, cuddly creatures. Um, I'm not sure I understand the distinction you're making because I mean there are there are certainly magical creatures that are that you know that um, are you know folkloric or mythological, um, such as you know elves, fairies, uh, Pegasus, uh, things like that. That um, they're certainly fantastical. They're you know they're they're not real, um, but that are you know are they monsters? I mean, is a is a fairy or an elf a monster? I mean, in, in a way, it is, but you know you don't you don't hear evil fairies for the most part. So right. I, so just because it's uh, it's a you know so I guess what I'm saying is that those sorts of creatures I think fulfill that role of being something that's out there that is benign. Uh, but yet there's these other monsters that aren't. Yeah, I, I would basically, I would, the way I'm thinking of it is almost like um, fantastical creatures would be almost like a genus. 
and monsters would be a sort of species within that genus. But there would be these other creatures as well, which would be benign or, you know, um, neutral or, or just sort of low-grade mischievous, because uh, low-grade mischievous spirits really uh, are the main populators of the animistic traditions around the world. Mm-hmm. Whether it be um, Japanese or, um, as I said before, I, I lived in Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, there's a very strong belief in uh, animistic spirits, which are like ghosts, and they pop. You know, they're tutelary spirits. They they pop. They sort of are housed in specific regions. Like this tree has a spirit. This um, this river has a spirit, and their position is that you've got to build these spirit houses. And you you create little houses for these uh, animistic spirits to live in, and you give sort of shot glasses of whiskey and uh, you know lotus flowers and various offerings to keep the spirits placated. So if you you can basically have a relationship with them that's totally peace peaceful. You know you're basically both living in the same yard. Mm-hmm. And it's okay because you've given them the right kind of offerings. But if you don't give them the right offerings, well, they'll turn on you very, very quickly. And so I remember my friend, when I was in Laos, my friend who's Laotian said, uh, you know, when the full moon comes, he always puts whiskey out for the, the spirits. Because uh, if, they, if he doesn't, they will trouble his children's dreams and bring nightmares to his kids. So a lot of these creatures are really, I think, um, you know, they can be benign, and you can have a warm and fuzzy relationship with them. But if you if you don't treat them right, they'll turn on you. And so that that's the sort of, I guess, you know, that's the sort of domain of beings that we're talking about. Uh, some of the more nefarious ones, I sort of bracket out and say, you know, these are just evil creatures, and they have a tradition, um, a monster tradition. Some of them, I think, are sort of on the fence and go both ways. Between well, it's, inter- uh, it's, say, it's interesting that you bring up the, the whole idea of, of sort of leaving sacrifices for monsters, um, because I, I, I found that in some of my research, uh, particularly uh, the lake monster Ogopogo in, in British Columbia. Um, there was a tradition where uh, the, uh, the, the native... Um, Native Americans there, uh, Indians, the First Nations groups would 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 uh, actually, when they were crossing this one part of the of the um, of the lake, they would sometimes make sacrifices. They would kill a dog, or they would leave food or something, and they would drop it into the water uh, to allow safe passage. And it sounds like very much in that same tradition. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, I wasn't aware of that tradition, but it you can see how that goes all the way back. Um, the the idea that um, we're 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 living in a world that's populated by some uh, creatures that we can't sort of uh, negotiate with normally, you know, with speech and so forth, um, and that these are powerful. You can see that whole tradition of a of devotion and ritual is sort of designed to appease them, and so that brings an interesting question about the relationship between the gods and the. That's monsters. Yeah, that, they're, they're, uh, that was going to be my next question. Is yeah, what how, how yeah. do you delineate between gods and monsters uh, if they all require? Yeah, I mean. It's it's a good point. I mean, in the early days, the, it really was a you know in the polytheistic days, um, you had really uh, two sides. You had the the good and the bad. You had the gods on the good on the good side, generally speaking. Although they weren't they weren't all good. They were quite um, they were morally <laughs> repugnant too. Um, but then you had uh, the monsters, and the I guess what happens in the West is that slowly 
polytheism um, evolves into monotheism, and so you build in, okay, your God can do this and your God can do that, but hey, my God, um, Yahweh, he can do all that stuff. And slowly you start building up a monotheistic God that has all of the powers that, the, that were distributed over the polytheistic um, gods. And then you have this whole new problem, which is that pro- this problem of evil. And in the book I talk about the problem of monsters, which is before you had the monotheistic God, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, you could sort of explain evil and monsters. Um, but afterwards, you've got this additional problem, which is why does God let monsters exist? Why does he let demons torture people? And what's the point of this? Because he clearly knows about it. He knows everything. He's clearly powerful enough to stop it. He's all-powerful. Um, and he's supposed to be all good, so why does he let this happen? So monsters become this new theological problem uh, once you get monotheism going. And so I try to trace how that, how that get, gets worked out in the book. Another thing you talk about, uh, or I think you give a lot of uh, power to, is is the role of Frankenstein in the change of uh, how monsters are, are portrayed in, in Western culture. Um, how important was Frankenstein uh, as far as changing the cultural perception of monsters? Yeah, he. I, I think uh, the you know Shelley's book. Uh, it's interesting that it in its original formulation it didn't have quite the same kind of critique of the sciences that I think the later uh, versions have. And, you know, in the later versions, it's oftentimes taken to be a kind of romantic criticism of, hey, you know, the sciences are great, but look what can happen when you unleash their, you know, their power. You can basically end up playing God, and isn't this awful? And, And so it was oftentimes interpreted this way, I think, uh, the story, uh, of course, I think goes back to even earlier traditions, like I mentioned, the Jewish uh, tradition of the, the golem. Uh, here you have a, a giant that the rabbi um, in Prague creates in order to protect the, the Jewish ghettos in Prague against uh, pogroms and, and aggressors. But um, the giant basically can't quite be controlled. So when you wind up something this powerful, do you have control over it? And I think that that message, both you can see it in the Golem story and you can see it in the Frankenstein story, has, I think, stayed with us because of the incredible advances of science and technology. I mean, the fact that we today can now get into the genome and <laughs> do manipulations uh, that, you know, hitherto were unimaginable has kept this Frankenstein fear alive and well at this sort of are we going are we going are we playing god are we messing with nature in a way that's going to come back in unforeseen consequences um and so i think in a way frankenstein just crystallizes all of those uh, anxieties about uh human knowledge and and science and you see it uh it comes up again you'll just see somebody will talk about stem cell research and then somebody perhaps on the on the religious side of things will will scream Frankenstein syndrome or something. And so I think it has shaped the way we think about science uh, today. 
In, in your book, you, you cover a lot of the history of it, and of course, that's one of the that's one of the benefits is understanding the history of it, so you can understand the the present context to it. Um, but uh, what's your take on the mon- on the modern monster search? Um, what, what's your take on the people who go out there, the groups that are out there looking for Bigfoot and chupacabras and, and Nessie and stuff? Do you think that that's all a fool's errand, or do you think there's merit to it, or what what do you what do you think about that? That's a good question. Um, you sort of have to, it's almost hard to describe this kind of search, um, you know, in the, in the right way, because as soon as you start sort of using terms like Bigfoot, I think the skeptic in me wants to go, whoa, okay, you know, this is a, a, a lot more um, wishful thinking and, uh, and so forth. But the, if we sort of, let's say we neutralize this kind of a search, uh, from these sort of really loaded terms like Bigfoot and Chupacabra. And we instead ask ourselves, are there um, populations of creatures that could be big enough to be breeding uh, and reproducing? And, um, and could they, in fact, have hitherto been undiscovered? And are, are they perhaps in some very... Um, dense wooded regions or are they in some areas where human beings just haven't made um you know much of a entry into there i think you know totally i'm I'm all thumbs up you know uh it seems to me that it would be um unscientific to rule out that kind of uh pursuit uh sort of beforehand it's an empirical question so um and the fact that, as I said, we keep finding stuff in the oceans, that's where I think the, the really crazy stuff is going to continue to be found, um, is an indicator that, yeah, we don't have a good, we don't have a good handle on all of the uh, fauna you know, that the planet has. And so I think we are going to be, continue to be surprised. Um, it, it just so happens that some of the people who go looking for this stuff tend to be kooky and, and <laughs> tend to give this kind of search a bad name. But um, but that's you know that's just my personal view. One of the other things you talk about in the book is uh, about racism and xenophobia, and and in their role in monsterizing or demonizing sort of what people call the other, right? So how do you uh, think the psychological construct of of a monster affects human interaction when we can do this to our opponents, where we can turn them into demons or monsters? Yeah, it, it's clearly. Uh uh, this demonization goes way back, um, and uh, you see that whenever uh, cultures meet each other, if they're um, unfamiliar with each other, they tend to project. You know, in the old days, it was uh, it was this sort of notion of being a barbarian uh, or being uncultured or uncivilized, and so you frequently had the ancient Greeks and Romans um, talking about uh, monsters living sort of in India, and even their understanding of Indian people, for example, was that they, I mean, just had all kinds of lore and crazy stuff um, about them, and this is clearly something we still do when we have enemies. We try to dehumanize them as much as possible. I, I make this uh, analogy in the book. Um, you know, we, we had this film, 300, where we had the... Um, you know, the Spartans fighting uh, the Persian army, and I think a lot of people are familiar with this Hollywood film. And uh, some people pointed out, you know, that uh, it's, is it accidental? I, I happen to like the film just because it was a great sort of testosterone-fueled uh, adventure story, and I enjoyed it as a Hollywood film. But a lot of people pointed out, well, 
look at how the Persians are represented. And in the film, you see, you don't see them as men, you see them as monsters. They're actually sort of, you know, they use the, you know, special effects technology to sort of show them as actually sort of half animal and, you know, they've got fangs and the whole bit. And, and of course, they obviously weren't any of this. Um, but uh, as I think some uh, Persian uh, scholars <laughs> pointed out, they were like, well, you know, is it any accident that, that we're also sort of in a war with Iraq, um, which is where, of course, ancient Persians are from, and we're sort of in this so-called clash of civilizations. Um, and, you know, I think this is perhaps a, it's a subtle argument, but I think there's something to it. We all tend to demonize the enemy, and one of the functions that this plays is it allows us to fight them. Uh, and I think the soldier, the average soldier, doesn't think of his enemy as a, as much of a, as a human being as 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 something more inhuman. And I think uh, there's a lot of psychological training to get that done. So uh, that's one of the functions of monsters that I think is still with us. Um, you basically want to dehumanize the enemy in order to to eliminate them. So were there any monsters that you wanted to include in your book but didn't have time or space for? Uh, there wasn't any one particular um, monster that, that got cut out. I managed to keep everything in that I wanted to. I regret that I wasn't able to discuss, you know, the vampires and zombies as much as, uh, as I should have because they, they, in the last couple of years, they've really taken off as a, as a cultural meme, and uh, they're sort of everywhere. Yeah, they've really resurrected. Uh, so I, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean... I, I, I wish uh, I would have had more on that. And I think people, you know, why is it, I guess? I would have loved to sort of muse more on why it is that those are so so fascinating for people. Hmm. Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me uh, wrap up with a question that we ask all our, all our guests, which is, what is your favorite monster? <laughs> what is my favorite monster? God, you know, this is, I got to say, I don't know why, but uh, it's got to be the Wolfman. And I think it's strictly because when I was a kid, I had I it was my it was my first big exposure. My dad and I would watch uh, Creature Features, and they had the Lon Chaney Jr. version of uh, the Wolfman. And I got to say, it just got into you know into my spine. And for whatever reason, like it continues to be a great uh, great monster for me, the Wolfman. It's a classic. Mm-hmm. I just watched. I, I watched it with my daughters the other day. Uh, I just, I'm trying to introduce them to the old uh, black and white movies, and uh, oh, yeah. they call them uh, they call them gray. I never really thought about it. They're not really black and white. They call them gray. They're gray movies. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, they really. I actually let them watch the Hammer version, but I had to kind of edit it a little bit. It was a little bit too bloody. Oh yeah, but, uh, those are bloody. yeah. They're quite bloody, but uh, but they they loved uh, the monster itself, and uh, but the the Lon Chaney is just a classic. It's a classic. Um, I never could quite get. Uh, I, I never got excited about the uh, vampires for some reason, the Dracula and so forth. I, I liked the the more animalistic creatures for some reason. Yeah, you know, I, I, in the vampire movies I've enjoyed, I, I think I like the ones where um, uh, the the vampire is more of a monster and less human. You know, where or yeah. maybe they're tragic in the sense that they can't control their hunger. Um, yeah. I thought Stephen King's. Um, 
Salem's Lot, the the how that the uh, the vampire there he he he's bad, but he also you know he seems to have some touch in his humanity, but he's also has an insatiable hunger. Well, anyway, it's cool. I, I like I like I like it when the the vampire is really a, a monster because frankly, um, if you make it too human, it's just a human, right? I mean, you know, that's right. so. It's yeah. just a superpowered human, and that's not really a monster, is it? There's got to be something frightening. So, anyway, thank you so much for your time, and this is such an excellent book. Yeah, it was great well, talking. I appreciate to you. you guys having me on. It was really a uh, is a, a really good good interview. I enjoyed. Thanks it. a lot. I look forward. Good, oh, well, yeah. What's coming up next? You working on anything else? I'm working on a book now uh, for University of Chicago. A very different kind of book. It's uh, it's a critique of. We have this tension between our desire to be fair to everybody, and also we have these sort of natural family nepotistic desires, and I'm trying to sort of do a philosophy book that looks at this tension. So very different. We'll bring you back for our other podcast, Family Talk. (laughs) That'd That'd be great. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today we interviewed author Stephen Asma on his new book, On Monsters. A link to his book will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is produced with the help of Skeptic Magazine. Your hosts are myself, Blake Smith, Ben Radford, Managing Editor of Skeptical Inquirer Magazine, and Dr. Karen Stolzno, Skeptical Investigator and Blogger. If you enjoy Monster Talk, please give us a review at iTunes. If you hate Monster Talk, be sure and visit our forums at www.skepticforum.com where you can tell us how to make the show better. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. Thanks for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today. But I wanted to talk about, you talk early in the story, it's not a story, let me write it, let me redo that. Saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money and-